1: Mr. President, welcome back to Meet the Press. Thank you. Uh, let me start right in. You have a secret, but you don't want to tell me.
2: Chuck, look. Dead people. I don't see anything. Chuck, just listen for okay. one sec. Are you sure they're there? Chuck. <laughs> well, I speak to Bush and John McCain. I think he's real. I don't think I know. I think
3: that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them, so you need to help them.
2: No, they're stone-cold crazy.
4: Not every gift is a blessing. The sixth sense.
2: Uh, Chuck. I'm working on it.
5: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 99 of Intercepted. Do you have an exit strategy for Iran if war does break out. Uh
2: You're not going to need an exit strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need exit strategies. Are you president, can you tell us about your letter to Chairman Kim? Just a nice letter back and forth. He wrote me a beautiful letter on birthday. was my birthday.
5: If there has been one overarching theme to the often vile rhetoric emanating from Donald Trump and his administration, it's been violent gaslighting. The whole Make America Great Again framing, it's an umbrella under which a seemingly endless series of lies and historical revisionism reside. We see this on issues of race, economics, gender, climate, women's health, war, Even history itself, this whitewashing of U.S. history, the reverence for slave owners who served as presidents of this country, it's not an invention of Donald Trump. Almost all politicians in this country throughout history have engaged in this revisionism masquerading as patriotism. But under this administration, under Donald Trump, it is out there in the extreme open. It is a source of pride. Last week, the author and intellectual Tanahasi Coates testified in front of the U.S. Congress on the issue of reparations for Black Americans. And I hope everyone listening to this show has taken the time to watch that testimony.
3: For a century after the Civil War, Black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs. Coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader.
5: That was Tanahasi Coates testifying before the U.S. Congress. And that hearing happened at a moment where there is still a debate in this country over the true story of the Civil War and the nature of the Confederacy. It's somehow with us always these days, from Charlottesville to the issue of Civil War monuments and beyond.
2: But many of those people were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. So this week it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you, all, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop?
5: One of the best sources for dissecting all of this that I've found is a great podcast called Uncivil. The show's producers describe their program as telling stories that were left out of the official history of the Civil War, ransacking America's past and taking on the history you grew up with. They say, quote, we bring you untold stories about resistance, covert operations, corruption, mutiny, counterfeiting, antebellum drones, and so much more. And we connect these forgotten struggles to the political battlefield we're living on right now. The story of the Civil War, the story of slavery, Confederate monuments, racism, is the story of America.
4: This is an easy one for all leaders to get up and say, this is not us. This is not us. I hear that all the time now.
1: But the fact is, this is us. America's always been divided. From Gimlet Media, this is Uncivil.
5: I'm joined now by the co-host and co-executive producer of Uncivil, Chenjerai Kumanyika. He is a researcher, a journalist, a hip-hop artist. He is also an assistant professor at Rutgers University in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies. Chenjerai, welcome to Intercepted.
1: Hey, man. Thanks for having me on, man.
5: We saw ta Coates and others testify in front of Congress last week on the issue of reparations. I just want to get your big picture view of this issue and what you think should happen
1: i appreciated the way that Coates frame things in terms of you know america when it thinks about its history has to account for these other things that don't fit with the sort of uh, patriotic narrative right i think that it's good that we're talking about reparations i think that's a conversation that we should be moving into but i do think we have to move into it with caution I think there's a lot of perils that we face. You know, one of the things that is a part of uh, the H.R. 40 proposition is putting together a body that would really do a full accounting about how we would even think about reparations. We create a commission to study the history of slavery in America, the role of the federal and state
5: governments in supporting slavery and racial discrimination, other forms of discrimination against the descendants of slaves, and the lingering consequences of slavery and Jim Crow. On African Americans.
1: And this was, as we know, part of Coates' argument in, in his article was that that accounting, it could be that that winds up being the most, most realizable part of the whole call for reparations. Because there's a lot of complicated things in terms of figuring out and sorting out the different kinds of claims that different groups might even have, how you even figure out who gets these things, et cetera. But we're also in a political moment where you know, in terms of the Democrats, a lot of these different candidates have sort of loosely signed on to the idea of reparations. It's precisely because it's not really defined. And so in a way, reparations, which would appear to be like this really radical demand, becomes something that in the hand of, I think, Democratic politicians is a way they can perform their racial politics without committing to anything really substantive, And I also think that if we look at how reparations played out in the discussions around the 2016 election with many people challenging Bernie Sanders, essentially people say to Bernie Sanders, do you support reparations? And Sanders kind of says, we have got to invest in the
5: future. What we have got to do is address poverty in America, something that very few people talk about, and especially poverty in the African American
3: community and the Latino community.
5: And if you look at my record and if you look at my agenda, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, creating millions of jobs by rebuilding our infrastructure, focusing on high
3: rates of youth unemployment, I think our candidacy is the candidacy talking to the issues of the African American community.
1: And I do think that at times, the way Sanders has talked about it may have sounded dismissive. But I do think that if you do not transform the way that capitalism functions if you don't transform the way that american imperialism functions you can't really have any real conception of justice so and there is a way in which you can have a kind of reparations that operates within a market system doesn't threaten it but in the and in the context of the 2016 election i think this is really important reparations actually functioned as a way to paint people who were to the left of hillary clinton as class reductionists who didn't have a racial analysis, right? And I think at moments, it may have even appeared to make Hillary Clinton, who had sort of surrounded herself with mothers of the Black Lives Matter movement, as like more of a racial ally than Bernie Sanders, which is absurd. And I think that's the danger that we have to revisit this time while pushing very clearly for reparations. So I think that when you look at people like Sandy Darity and many others, who are thinking in creative ways about what reparations could mean. For one, the sort of reckoning with not just slavery, but the ongoing forms of what might be called, you know, different types of racial capitalism, you know, carceralism, environmental racism, you know, voting suppression, redlining, like all these things that emerge after slavery, right? Right. So I think that the research about that and the sort of public reckoning with that in a real way, which we've never had in the United States, is is really necessary part of this. But then I think that we have, have to begin to think creatively. I mean, listen, man, I'm never going <laughs> in America. I'm never going to argue against people of color and black folks getting a check, you know, given the amount of <laughs> given the billions and trillions that have been made uh, on our backs, right? And, and, and the way that I see working class people struggling, right? Like, I'm not going to go out here in public and ever say like, no, don't cut, us, don't cut us a check. I'm most excited about the ideas that where you might be able to make a demand on our systems that might actually force it to change. How can reparations be combined with something like a Green New Deal? I think with our creativity and our imagination and our revolutionary imagination, we can do that.
5: I think a part of this also, or a big part of it, is that this country has never been forced to confront the transatlantic slave trade. Tens of millions of people snatched and brought in horrifying conditions to the Western Hemisphere to serve as totally unpaid forced laborers. The country has never reckoned with the fact that it ran a systemic multi-million person kidnapping operation that ended in people being enslaved,
1: building up the white man's profit centers in the United States. Absolutely. There's never been a reckoning with that. And when it's been mentioned, it's almost mentioned as, as kind of a side note with Edward Baptiste, I mean, there's so many other, I mean, really, be even before Edward Baptiste, so many other scholars in the in the black radical tradition, Eric Williams and others, have said no. You know, slavery was at the center of capitalism, right? Uh with Craig Wilder's book, Ebony and Ivy, slavery was at the center of actually building up the university system in the north. Slavery was not like this southern problem that was like just a few sort of southern racist people. You know I mean, really had some issues with bigotry, so they decided to make black people slaves like none of that I mean that's and you'd be amazed how how many mainstream journalist accounts I see, how many people who are you know otherwise intelligent people buy into a narrative that basically slavery happened because you know some southern white people didn't like black people or something like that you know I mean there's no economic analysis of this institution. And its legacy, which is still ongoing, you know, I mean, even in an institution like New York Life, right, where, you know, they literally were insuring slaves, right? I mean, that's just, just one among many examples. The Civil War, it permeates
5: so many political debates in this country, whether the participants in those debates even realize that they're doing it or not. It seems, especially with Trump now in power, and you have this controversy over the Civil War monuments many of those monuments were built decades and decades after the Civil War as a direct provocation to black residents of cities across this country. For people who may not fully understand the nuances of the Civil War in the United States, just give your broad overview of the conditions that led to what we refer to as the Civil War and what the root issues
1: were involved with it. Really what you had leading up to the Civil War was a tremendous transfer of land from working class people, uh, some of whom were racist white people in the South, to elite plantation owners who also gained tremendous power in government and began to essentially capture the state. There was so much land that had been converted to for use for cotton in the South that there was worries about a crisis of food production, actually. That's the level of of land transfer for the purpose of a small, essentially a handful of Southern landowners. Now, that's not to say that it was only those Southern landowners who participated in slavery, right? I mean, there was a slave leasing. There was all kinds of ways that this was deeply central to the economy. But I think that there were desires to expand the slave trade, right, into the West, and actually, even beyond the West into other parts of what folks hoped would become the American Empire. While you have that going on, right, you also have essentially a, an abolition movement. You have also the American Colonization Society, who is basically seeing slavery as a problem, the presence of African Americans on American soil as the problem you also have essentially mostly northern industrial capital that's gaining power you know wanting to sort of look at the south and begin to change the way that the economy works now let me just say too you know i don't i, I really want to avoid the the painting of essentially like the northern industrial capital as forces that were opposed to slavery there were a lot of businessmen in new york who were very much reliant on slavery for their businesses, right? And the president of New York Life was actually one of those people, so much so that they actually, you know, implored Lincoln not to try to go to war with the South when the South seceded. You know, you have a a group of Southern states who say they're going to secede because they really want to maintain their rights to slavery. In the battle over the Fugitive Slave Act, Lincoln basically sides with the South and says that slave owners can come back into the North and remove slaves. When the Southern states all give their reasons for secession, right, they all produce these sort of secession documents that declare the reasons why they're seceding. And in each one of those documents, they all mention slavery as the only reason, really, that they're seceding. So they write other things, but they're clear that the reason they're seceding is because of slavery. In the aftermath of the Civil War, a different narrative took shape where the South, you know, started to change the the idea and the reasons for why they seceded to be about something called states' rights. They started to promote the myth that slavery would have withered away on its own and all kinds of other things that sort of confused and mystified the actual reason why they seceded. It's remarkable,
5: several of the things you just cited just feel so contemporary. First of all, the historical revisionism about what this country was during that period in time, and continues to be in many quarters but also the notion that none of this is really about race all all you identity politics warriors out there you know you, this is just quackery basically and the real issue was always just liberty it had to be liberty and the maximum liberty is when the states have rights and the federal government is not imposing its will i mean that is a huge part
1: of the the current political dynamic particularly among the maga crowd Absolutely, the fact that so many people have no understanding why the South seceded, no understanding of why the Civil War was fought is in a way a victory of the Confederacy that they were able to rewrite history over a period of a hundred years or so and their version of history has become in a way the dominant one that people know where you know they don't they don't think it had to do with slavery and it really works well in a time when you have, politicians who sort of want to maintain a certain kind of color blindness as the dominant way to deal with race in America. I mean cuz I think that you know what one of the things I think that we're we have to wrestle with Jeremy and this is a, a, you know I think for people who listen to the intercept this is like a basic point but is race really just this sort of issue about personal attitudes, right? And people's individual biases and bigotry? a kind of psychological mode of thinking about the problem of racism? Or is it something that was deeply baked into the structures and economic systems of this country? You know, not even just the culture, but the economic systems like this country has had to have racism because racism, essentially or white domination was built into the economic modes of slavery, right? In the economic modes that currently drive the society, right? When you look at the Civil War, when you look at the documents of secession and you see the things that they said about slavery, when you go back to some of the founding documents of the country, right, the Three-Fifths Compromise and other th- other things, if you read um, my friend Erica Dunbar's wonderful book on Own a Judge and George Washington, you know, at one point, George Washington was rotating his slaves from Philadelphia to another state just so that he could avoid them becoming free after their six month residency in Philadelphia. I mean, this is the president. This is the first president of the United States who's actually hacking the law in a way to preserve slavery. Right? So there's a way that racism is structurally baked in. And I think that certainly conservatives are invested in a psychological individualistic mode that doesn't require us to transform structures. Right. That doesn't require us to um, challenge capitalism. And, you know, sadly, There's also quite a few Democrats who are signed on to that. In fact, we just saw Joe Biden waxing nostalgic about how, you know, he had his civility with racist segregationist senators. You know, he goes through this whole thing where he's like, well, you can say whatever you want, but in the end of the day, you just beat the system. And then he emphasizes you don't have to like the people in
3: terms of their views, but you just simply make the case and you beat them. You beat them without changing the system.
5: Biden really, really seems to be campaigning as a Dixiecrat in a lot of ways, a neo-Dixiecrat. And, you know, the other thing that now people are starting to learn some of this history because we're in campaign mode. But in 1988, Joe Biden called Jesse Jackson boy when Cory Booker, the New Jersey senator who's running against Biden for the Democratic nomination, released a statement criticizing Biden for praising these segregationist senators. Biden's response to Cory Booker saying he should apologize for framing a compromise, essentially on the backs of black people in this country. His response was Cory should apologize. Cory should apologize.
3: He knows better. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career.
5: And then you take Joe Biden's legislative record, whether it's the crime bill and all of the other things he said that were at a minimum racially insensitive. And it's hard to understand how anyone who's about justice can
1: look at Joe Biden and say, yep, that's my guy. It really is. And this is why I think we have to really think carefully about race in this time, because Joe Biden is able to render himself adjacent to Obama, right? And so what you see is that First of all, the inability to have a critique of Obama is a problem to really understand his policies in a substantive way. His foreign policy, the overall impact of you know his failure to hold Wall Street executives accountable, all kinds of things, ways that we could ask robust, critical questions about Obama's policy. The failure to do that allows Joe Biden to symbolically position himself in his sort of adjacency and work with Obama as some kind of racial solidarity with black people. Right. And then we also don't look at Biden's record in the ways that you just indicated. People who do are very vulnerable to being seen as people who are ironically somehow not committed to an anti-racist politics. You were talking about
5: George Washington and his involvement with slavery and being the first president. I mean, obviously, Lincoln was assassinated, so it's hard to figure out how to frame this. But like, has history been too kind to Lincoln, the history that is taught in this country about who he was? Because a lot of it just boils down to, oh, Lincoln was an abolitionist. He freed the slaves. He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And that's generally just the vibe about him. And that's why these charlatans like Dinesh D'Souza and others can hold this out of the Republicans have always been the, the, you know, the, the party of freedom. And we were the ones fighting slavery, and they you, they weaponize that simplistic history. But directly just asking you, has that history, is it too kind to Lincoln on the issues we're discussing about slavery, abolitionism, and the Civil War?
1: Yes, absolutely. We're offered a mythical understanding of history in which Lincoln is just a, a sort of racial white savior. We don't really hear about the movements, the slave rebellions, the hundreds of slave rebellions, building up to the Emancipation Proclamation. I think that's embodied in the Freedmen's Memorial statue in Washington, D.C., where you have Lincoln standing there and this Black person at his feet in chains. And I think that stands in as a visual for how Lincoln is memorializing the national memory. One of the biggest problems we have in this country in terms of understanding really how anything works is that we're deeply not historical. And this is one of the great things I love about intercepted is intercepted is a really historical show that says, essentially, you can't understand this issue. You can't understand these foreign policy issues. You can't understand issues with data or with, you know, economics without understanding these relevant facts about history, you know, and once we understand the history, we can form, maybe, you know, our analysis don't all have to line up, but you have to contend with these facts, And that's something that I think is deeply missing in this country. And so when you have a more rich history, you see one Lincoln growing, right? Like Lincoln starting out, like not at all interested in emancipation. Lincoln is somebody who is essentially interested in preserving the union and was fully okay with first preserving the union and maintaining slavery. And then he also is, Lincoln is a colonizationist. So he believes black people can't exist on the American soil along with whites, after emancipation. And he tells this to Frederick Douglass. He goes, you know, y'all going to have to get out of here. Right. And then Frederick Douglass, you know, challenges that needless to say, but those kinds of things. And I think even bigger than that, the idea that one man, you know, by passing this law can somehow transform this oppressive structure. Right. Which has all kinds of layers of of oppression built into it is also part of a deeply ahistorical way of thinking about history. Hmm.
5: You've talked a lot about the dilemma, as you put it, that many black intellectuals in this country face. And you've said this need to navigate the dominant understandings of race in this country, which suffers from a deeply impoverished understanding of history, labor and capitalism and imperialism.
1: Explain what you mean. I'm somebody who's really just always still trying to learn about this stuff. You know, that's kind of intimidating, I think, when you're someone who has a public life, because I think there's a pressure for all of us to sort of appear as fully formed, <laughs> you know what I mean, political and historical people. Do you ever, do you ever that oh, sure. pressure? Oh, All the time. Of course. <laughs> and I wonder if, in particular in the social media area where everything is kind of reduced to like a, somebody trying to come up with a slick tweet, me included, right? Like I spend a lot of time trying to think of slick tweets. <laughs> but where the idea of being a student and study that was, has been central to so much political work, right? That was crucial to like labor organizing in the South and and in the civil rights movement. I mean, we talk about the Black Panthers. I mean, the Black Panthers were students, you know, they had study groups. The idea that we're always learning and we don't understand everything, the room that then creates for us to develop a stronger analysis and politics in public life. I worry that that's gone, that that's, we're, we're losing that. As I kind of first started writing, I was writing about race, and I was taking on a lot of the basic myths about race, which which I would basically characterize as most people think race is about individual attitudes and bigots and clan members with hoods on, right? Like white people won't acknowledge that there's racism going on unless somebody's literally wearing a hood, right? And then I was challenging that and saying there's other... More, you know, there's structural aspects of race and that actually the structural aspects are more important, right, for us to take on, even though I'm not saying the bigotry, explicit bigotry is good, especially in a time when you have the growth of hate crimes, right? We have to take it very seriously, but that ultimately we have to transform some structures here. We have to look at voting rights. We have to look at economics. We have to look at automation. We have to look at all those things. Chenjerai Kumanyika, I want to thank you so much for being with
5: us and for all the work you do. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Chenjerai Kumanyika is the co-host and co-executive producer of the really great podcast Uncivil. He's also a researcher, a journalist, and a hip-hop artist. He's assistant professor at Rutgers University in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies.
3: Came into the country illegally are going to be removed from the country. Everybody knows that. Uh, it starts, you know, during the course of this next week, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. And they're going to start next week. And when people come into our country and they come in illegally, uh, they have to go out.
5: These threats from Trump highlight the despicable actions that this administration has taken. They have criminalized those seeking asylum and the process of seeking asylum. They've taken the worst policies from Clinton through Obama. And expanded them, doubled down on them. They've put asylum seekers in crowded cages. They've ripped children away from their parents. (inaudible) Deported the parents. Children are dying in ICE custody. (inaudible) (inaudible) To make matters worse, border protection has openly attacked humanitarian efforts. There's an ongoing case right now of a man who gave basic care to suffering people and had the book thrown at him. I'm talking about Scott Warren, who gave food, water, and shelter to those in need, to those who were seeking asylum in this country. Warren was arrested and is now facing up to 20 years in jail on charges of harboring and conspiracy. My colleague at The Intercept, Ryan Devereaux, has been following this case extensively and reporting from the trial in Arizona. Here is Ryan Devereaux.
0: Scott Warren is a humanitarian aid volunteer who lives and works in Ajo, Arizona, about 40 miles north of the U.S. border. He was arrested in January 2018, accused of providing food, water, and shelter to two undocumented migrants who had uh, crossed the desert. He was charged with harboring and conspiracy, and if convicted and sentenced to consecutive terms, he faces up to 20 years in prison.
5: So you get a good shot picking up this trash somebody left on the trail. It's not yours, is it? All you do is tell me—is it yours? Not yours.
0: You're not gonna tell me, huh? So on January 17th, 2018, no more Dos put out a report detailing the destruction of. Thousands of gallons of of water in jugs that were left out in areas where migrants are known to die. Hours after that happened, Border Patrol set up surveillance on a building known as the barn that humanitarian aid groups in Ajo have been using for years. They spotted Scott with two men who they believed were undocumented, pulled together a raiding team, descended on the barn, took them into custody, and that's when Scott was charged. So the morning before his trial, Scott Warren went on Democracy Now!, and here's what he had to say in his own words.
4: Every day in the border region, uh, migrants, refugees, uh, people who are coming across the border, who are coming through the desert, who are suffering, who are at risk of dying, are knocking on people's doors, and they're in need of water, they're in need of food, they're in need of basic medical care and basic necessities. and. People all across the border region are continuing to respond by offering these folks a glass of water, um, by offering them some rest or some food, Uh, and frankly, I don't see that changing.
0: On May 29th, Scott Warren's felony trial started in Tucson, Arizona. He was facing charges of harboring and conspiracy, with a potential sentence of up to 20 years in prison. It was a, a dramatic week or so worth of testimony that then led to three days of deliberations. Uh, jurors were essentially asked to consider one important question above all else, and that was intent. Did Scott Warren intend to violate the law, or did he intend to provide humanitarian aid? And after three days of deliberation, the jurors told Judge Raynor Collins that they couldn't come to a, a unanimous conclusion. A mistrial was declared and now we're left wondering what's going to happen next. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona has not said whether they're going to retry the case. Uh, A hearing is scheduled for July 2nd and they said that they will come to a conclusion, uh, a decision by then.
2: To confront this border crisis, I declared a national emergency. The crisis on the southern border is a
0: border crisis. crisis.
2: It is an invasion, you know that. I say invasion. Stop this this onslaught, this invasion into our country.
0: Obviously, this administration has been talking about crisis for quite some time. And when they talk about crisis, they are talking about hordes of undesirable migrants flooding over the walls, an invasion. I think that most people can can see what's going on there. At the same time, there is a kind of crisis on the border, and it's been unfolding for decades now. There's a crisis in which people are directed into the deadliest parts of the border by design, and they've been dying by the thousands for years and years and years.
4: We savor our desert, but this desert right around our town, where we recreate, held
0: 57 bodies, 57 remains of human beings last year, 57. Do you find remains in your parks, in your golf courses, in your
3: neighborhood playgrounds, what would that make you feel like?
0: Beginning in the mid-1990s under the Clinton administration, the U.S. government developed a policy known as prevention through deterrence. The idea of the policy was that migration flows were, at that time, generally concentrated around border cities. So the idea was we'll push those flows into the deadliest most remote areas of the border, the thinking being that people won't cross when they see how deadly this is. They did move migration flows away from the cities, but they didn't stop people from crossing. Beginning in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Sonoran Desert, southern Arizona, saw this radical explosion in in migrant deaths. The Pima County Medical Examiner's Office went from taking in a dozen or so suspected migrant deaths a year to well into the hundreds. At minimum, that office has cataloged 3,000 or so deaths since 2000. The real number is guaranteed to be much higher. Some estimates say that the true total could be three, four, five times that, and that's just in Arizona.
4: We went from finding human remains every other month to like finding five sets of human remains uh, on a on a single trip hiking through the Grawler Valley uh, and then going back you know a week later and finding uh, two more sets of remains and then on a single day of searching finding like eight sets of remains and bodies of people who had died in adjacent areas of the bombing range and on Cabeza Prieta so just this like scale of this crisis, of the humanitarian crisis and the missing persons crisis just blew wide open.
0: This crisis uh, of death and disappearance is exacerbated by policies that this administration has embraced in the last two years, which include turning away asylum seekers at ports of entry, forcing them to wait and wait uh, at ports, increasing the likelihood that they will turn to the desert this administration is turning away asylum seekers and sending them back to Mexico, back to areas where they are at tremendous risk. We've seen asylum seekers murdered as a result of this policy. It's only going to get worse.
4: People have always been walking through the desert. People have always been finding ways to, to come here through the desert. But what happened is it was turned into a major industrial-scale operation in the 1990s and early 2000s as they really pushed people out into places like these, you know, these deserts and mountains. What had been really a small-scale thing, local organizations that move people and goods through the desert, a small handful of Border Patrol agents that might go out and try to interdict people or might be involved, in, you know, finding people who had died or local residents who would respond the people who needed food and water, that all just completely mushroomed into this massive,
0: massive industry. So the policy of prevention through deterrence that began in the 1990s is sort of centered on this idea of a a kind of state of exception. This idea that on the border, in these sort of unwatched places, anything goes and migrants can be treated in ways that would be unacceptable for any other population. With the family separation crisis that we saw last summer, I believe that we saw an extension of that logic. This idea that you can do something to this group of people that would be unthinkable to anyone else. That is, you can take children from their parents, Throw them into uh, a bureaucracy with no word of where they're going, how they can be reunited again. You can only do that if you think of that population as less than human. And that, unfortunately, isn't new when it comes to U.S. border enforcement policy. It's been this sort of undergirding philosophy for two and a half decades now.
4: I guess every time I look at Scott, I think of my own son. And it's unconscionable to think that he's been charged with felonies for doing what, as a parent, I would be so proud of what he'd done.
0: So, Scott Warren's trial occurs against this larger backdrop of a border crackdown that's been unfolding for the last two years. Just this week, we saw President Trump tweet that ICE was preparing an operation that would result in the deportation of millions of undocumented people. There's a couple things that are important to keep in mind here, particularly since this sort of announcement is kind of designed to create anxiety and and fear. And one of the things that we need to remember is that ICE doesn't have the capacity to do what the president is saying that it's going to do as an agency. That said, it's also important to sort of step back and think about where we're at right now, where a president is issuing essentially threats to a criminalized population via Twitter on the eve of his official... Re announcement of his election campaign. We've seen this play out over and over throughout this administration an attempt to terrorize people in an effort to rally the base and show that we're doing what we said we were going to do.
5: Ryan Devereaux is my colleague at The Intercept. He spoke to our associate producer, Elise Swain. You can find Ryan's reporting on Scott Warren, as well as our series, The War on Immigrants, at TheIntercept.com. We end today's show, and in fact this season of Intercepted, with some stories and music from South Africa. Like the United States, South Africa is a country whose history is inextricably built on state violence and the systematic oppression of people of color. Both countries are scattered with statues and place names that function as monuments to white supremacy. But both countries are also home to movements aimed at tearing down these monuments of oppression from New Orleans to Cape Town, to decolonize land and to reclaim their own history. For Nakane, a South African artist who resides in London, this decolonization came from within as he struggled with Christianity and how he says it repressed his identity and his sexuality. Nakane's record, You Will Not Die, was released in the U.S. earlier this year, and it tells the story of grappling with religion, growing up queer in post-apartheid South Africa, and dismantling the history of colonization here is
2: nakani my name is nakane i'm a musician i'm a novelist and i'm an actor when lost did go to back and... I was born in a small town in the Eastern Cape of South Africa called Alice, in a hospital called the Queen Victoria Hospital. The Eastern Cape in particular was quite a British colony. And it's interesting how colonizers are not there to really start anything new. They're there to extend their own legacies, right?
5: South Africans, descendants mainly of the first men from Holland, and the settlers who followed them from France and England. This is their country. These are all South Africans.
2: And that goes down to the naming of places. You know, Queen Victoria Hospital. Alice is actually Queen Victoria's daughter. A general had given it to her as a present at the time. The fact that rivers are named and towns and chiefdoms are destroyed and you know all those things just like as if people are just expendable
3: under british guidance these people grew and prospered today they display their loyalty and
1: allegiance to visiting royalty spectacular and heartwarming scenes these to
3: britain's monarchs in a troubled world expressions of native loyalty further cement the bonds of empire the bonds that unite free men everywhere
2: My aunt and my biological mother and my other aunts were all opera singers. And they all sang Mozart and and Handel and all that stuff. And I grew up around that. And most of South Africa is so steeped in Western classical music. Even like Ngosi Sigilili Africa, which is our national anthem, is based on a
6: hymn. (laughs)
2: I was also being taught by my aunt. By the time I was seven years old, by the time I moved to Port Elizabeth, I got my first solo in school, in primary school, singing Silent Night at a carol evening. I can hear it now, like there's a video I'd posted on Instagram of me singing the Silent Night, and you can hear that there's already some training happening here. Well, I decided when I was seven years old. During that solo, I, I, I made the decision that I would dedicate my life to music forevermore. I knew that. How it was going to happen, I didn't know. What kind of music it was going to be, I still didn't know. But I knew that I wasn't doing it for the rest of my life. I didn't actually really want to be an operatic tenor. Even though I was interested in the technique and I was interested in how it sounded and I thought it was beautiful, I wanted to sing Marvin Gaye songs. What I liked about Marvin Gaye was how androgynous his voice was. How high it could be. How feather-light it could be. You know, and then you spend time just in the car listening to Marvin Gay records, trying to piece together, I guess, how he sang. It was only later that I actually wanted to be a songwriter. The idea of me being a songwriter, it was so... Foreign, it seems so impossible, it seems so, um, I don't know, miraculous to be able to write a song. Mm-hmm. Rufus Wainwright completely changed my life, and he showed me that you can be out from the get go.
6: One more chain,
2: You didn't need to make a big deal about your sexuality. And that, I found that really, really powerful. And he was successful. And he made music that I had never heard before in my entire life. Up until that point, I thought that queer people only made, like, village people music. And that was it.
6: I'd
2: come out to my friends and my cousins at 17. No big deal. And then I was outed by an ex-girlfriend and her mom when I was 19. Big deal. It was so ugly at home when I came out that my dad threw me out. And then I went back into the closet because my mom took me to a prophet, a Christian prophet. This just completely derailed me. And I jumped right back into the closet. Fighting it now. And then going into a much more conservative church after that and being sort of a project for them and sharing my testimony sometimes preaching about the fact that I had defeated homosexuality I've got this fog.
4: It runs
2: through me The next four or five years I was spent basically scrubbing off everything all my politics that I'd learned up to that point or oh, I remember being at a dinner because I used to go to church twice on Sunday and go to like two to three Bible studies a week and I remember one Bible study evening having dinner with the with the pastor and his family and his wife saying she doesn't care what I say the fact remains that black people were sinful in their ways before white people came to colonize them and that they were a judgment upon them so I said so you're saying that all the things that happened were deserved and she said yeah and there's nothing I was so flummoxed and so but also so in it shocked but also weird Stockholm Syndrome because not only did they take care of me spiritually they also took care of me, of me financially sometimes you know and so you so you believe in this completely because if, even if life sucks at least you're going to go to heaven I became homeless around 25, lived with friends in the couches and for the first time in my life, there was no one to remind me to read my Bible or to take me to Bible study and these were friends that I was told to give up because they were leading me down the wrong path by the church and these friends were the ones that were there for me when I had no place to live. Suddenly the church disappeared and so I took it upon myself to really ask myself some questions. Am I prepared to deny myself for the rest of my life? And it was clear to me that I was tired. I was exhausted of hating myself. I was exhausted of being an example, being a minstrel for them. And so I said, fuck it. And I left. The wound is a film based on a closer tradition for boys going into manhood. And part of the initiation rite of passage is circumcision. No one who is not closer is allowed in that space. They go into seclusion, into the mountain, and they're circumcised there. And they spend about a month healing and learning ways on how to be a man, so to speak. Um, It's changed over time, of course, with technology, with the mixing of different cultures. But, you know, the falcon, the center of it is still there, which is manhood. But you're not allowed to talk about it. It's a secret rite of passage. We went and we made a goddamn film about it. <laughs> and not only did we make a film about it, we put queer characters and principal characters, the lead characters of the three leads, could be described as queer. The film came out. It won a slew of awards all over the world. It is the most awarded film in South African history. And then things got really ugly. Traditional leaders of the country wanted to ban it they got the court to give it uh, basically a porn rating, which meant that it couldn't be shown in any cinemas. But people were talking. People were talking about toxic masculinity. People were talking about homophobia. Because the question was, what is it that we're angry about? Are we angry about the fact that people have made a film about this? Are we angry about the fact that the film shows that queer people exist in this space? I still can't go home. I still can't go to the Eastern Cape. Because I don't know what people are capable of. Because people still talk about the fact that if they were ever to see me, they would kill me. But I didn't leave South Africa because of that. No. I believe that if you've done something as disgusting as the people who were the custodians of white supremacy and colonialism, then they deserve to be blotted out of history. The history is in our bodies. The history is in our lives. We can do without them, you know. And we need to rewrite those stories. A lot of the people that, that are seen as the father figures of lands were rapists and murderers. And they're still celebrated. There are continents that are completely destroyed because of that. The first time I went to Europe, I remember thinking that I would be so excited to be there. And I was so fucking pissed off. (laughs) I remember walking around Paris being so angry. And going back home and saying to my boyfriend, I'm so fucking angry. And he said, why? And I said, it's so beautiful and it's so old and they get to have that, because I don't. Names are very important. Like when a person is trans, they come up with a different name that they chose and they said, no, 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 not what you said, but what I say about me and my life. I find that really, really beautiful. So, I thought I wanted to write about that. slept on on the, pebbles on the way to the gate, held my balance on the cuff of your shirt. When Apartheid ended, there was a lot of renaming of cities, of streets. I don't think anyone deserves to be a monument. I think monuments are really problematic. And every time these located, it's that goddamn statue of you and that everyone is praying to, because it's an idol, you know. Biblically speaking, they hurt, and it's a trigger to them.
4: No,
2: They're going everything, the stuff from you, but also asking, where was? The names of the people that I love, the people who raised me. Let's raise up the women who were there, you know, who during apartheid at least, and, and pre, apartheid, who took care of their families, make sure the kids had something to eat, you know, because a lot of fathers were killed or taken to prison. Those people, and that's why I wrote my song "New Brighton," which is about that.
5: Nakane's album You Will Not Die is out now. He also stars in the new John Cameron Mitchell podcast musical. It's called Anthem Homunculus. It was produced by Topic here at First Look Media. You can check it out at topic.com slash anthem. Nakane spoke to our producer, Jack Desidoro. And that does it for this week's show and for this season of Intercepted. We will be back with regular programming later in the summer. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. If you like what we do, support our show by going to theintercept.com slash join to become a sustaining member. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Desidoro. Our producer is Laura Flynn. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Our executive producer is Letal Malad. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription for this program is done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next season, I'm Jeremy Scahill.
6: Hold up.